we're in 2 Kings 22. Why don't you turn there really quick? Uh, 2 Chronicles 34, I'll be reading out of primarily. Um, let me explain this, actually. So th- next Sunday will be our last Sunday doing this series, Prophets and Kings. I know it's hard to believe. Don't pretend you're sad. Um, I know it's hard to believe. We've been in this since like April or, I don't know, March of last year, like a year and a half. We've been walking through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. If you're familiar with those books, even 1 and 2 Chronicles, they start towards the end to kind of build off or give different vantage point of the same story. Our hope is not just to have been overwhelming you with scripture. Our hope is to see the story of the gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus told us when you read the scriptures, they speak of me. And so we want to see Jesus. We want to see gospel narrative or threads throughout the scriptures. We want to see the brokenness of man, this longing for a true and good and wise king, but yet never seems to fully be there. And how ultimately that longing for the king is found in Jesus. And so um, if you've ever gotten confused with the Old Testament, like welcome to the club. It it can be overwhelming. You read hundreds of years of history. It may be a short few verses. And so here's the primary idea. After the book of Judges, the people of Israel, the 12 tribes go, we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. So they raised up a king named Saul. It was the people's choice. Then God raised up David. After David, you had Solomon. Because of Solomon's sin, Israel splits into two nations, the northern kingdom called Israel. Come on, you guys, you know this. I know it's confusing, but the northern kingdom was called Israel. That's the north. The southern kingdom called And you have Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. They're the first king to kind of branch off. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. We saw a few weeks back uh, the kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes, they've kind of fell apart, are taken captive into Assyria, uh, Assyrian captivity, and the kingdom of Judah is still alive and they're still around. So we'll put this up here just so you can kind of see this. Today we'll be looking at a king, might be my favorite, I don't know, his name is Josiah, great king. Um, you know, it's not like I ran around and pretended to be King Josiah my whole childhood. I'm kidding. Um, it's, it's, it is bizarre to teach on this guy. I do obviously love this guy. I'm named after this guy. I'm great king. Very thankful for this guy. Um, so don't look into this too much. Just cool story. Um, let me kind of explain. Judah really only had five like fully devoted kings to God. Israel never had one king. The, north, the northern tribe tribes, Israel, never had one king that's like, we're going to serve God wholeheartedly. Um, thankfully, the southern kingdom of Judah had about five. Some mixed kings are partially good. The, the scriptures even de- kind of declare it that way. The thing with Josiah is he's the last good king of Judah. He's the last king that brings in revival. His sons are terrible. We'll see that next week. They don't have a long reign. They eventually go into Babylonian captivity. And it's just, it's kind of terrible how it ends. It's sad how it ends. And it's to create this longing within us for a better king. We'll see that next week. But the idea today, and just so you kind of see, this, this is very important. This is the last like great revival for the nation of Israel, for Judah, for God's people. It's the last amazing like work where God moves in a powerful way. And we saw a couple weeks ago with Hezekiah, this revival, in a very similar way, we'll see another revival. And it's, it's so simple, but so profound of what God does and how he does some things. I want to actually share a couple things. I want to kind of fast forward to the end and have you see the big picture really quick. But God prophesied that there would be a king named Josiah who would bring in a revival. And if you remember this, it's in 1 Kings 13. This is right when Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam set or split, split up and they start their own kingdoms. And you have God warn Jeroboam about his direction 
about how he's worshiping pagan gods, and God prophesies about the king we're going to study today. So it's 1 Kings 13, verse 1 through 2. A prophet from Judah shows up. He says, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born uh, to, to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So just to back up, 1 Kings 13, 300 years ago, right when the nation splits into two kingdoms, a man of God, a prophet says, no, no, listen, one day, Jeroboam, there's going to be a king who's going to go to the north, even though it's already destroyed, he will do this. He'll go to the north, and he's going to offer up your guys on these sacrifices. He's going to offer up their bones on these sacrifices. This is fulfilled in 2 Kings 23. It says, Josiah, uh, and Josiah sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. So we're going to see this fulfilled in the, our, our text today. Uh, God's like, I, I'm by name. I'm calling out this guy. I'll raise up a guy to undo what you've done, to turn the people's hearts back to God. That is the idea. Uh, he says in 2 Kings 23, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah goes down as the greatest king. It's not my words. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, here, here's the idea, though, and why I want to bring this up. This is, it's like kind of a, it's a beautiful last glimmer of hope before the kingdom comes to an end. And there's like this just revival that breaks out. And it did take a little while, but there's this revival that breaks out. And it's interesting. I know a couple weeks ago, I've just been thinking about this. We talked about revival. And I know that it's weird. I don't know. Sometimes the church can talk about revival flippantly, or we long for revival. We want to see revival. We don't even know what that means. Sometimes we just say that. We're like, I want to see revival happen. I want to just say this. It seems to be so simple and yet so clear of how God makes this revival um, come out of nowhere. And it's just a rediscovery of the Word of God. We're going to read it. I think this is a profound text. The Word of God was lost in the house of God. The Word of God was lost in the house of God. They find the Word of God and there's a revival. And I think the, the simplest way, how can there ever be revival? We need to rediscover the Word of God. So the title today is simply Rediscovering the Word. And so before we read, before we look at that, why don't we just pray and um, just invite the Lord to lead us in this time, all right? Father, um, we just want to say thank you. We're just so grateful. We can come to you. We can worship you. God, I'm sure that myself and many others, there's so many different things in our heart, on our mind. Lord, I ask that... Um, you would do something within us here, personally and collectively, that Jesus, you would grab hold of our attention, that you would be our priority, that Jesus, we would just surrender our will to your will. God, help us not to learn information today, but we ask that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind through your word, that Jesus, you would make us more like you in this process that we'd rediscover the word. In Jesus, you are the word. Help us rediscover you. Help us just put you back on your, in your rightful place in our lives. And so we just want to thank you, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. You know, I, I really do want you to take a second and just imagine for a moment, just imagine, I mean, really what it would be like if everyone, let's just start small, everyone maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your, you know, city, just imagine if everyone, or let's just say the majority of people in South Florida, 
was like, you know what? We're going to pursue Jesus. I mean, really imagine if South Florida saw a revival. Like, what would that look like? Like, let's just say South Florida is hit with just this hunger for God, a thirst for God. This idea of like status quo life, I'm not okay with that. This idea of just work until you die, no, there's something more. Like, imagine if there's really a hunger for God in that way. Like, what would that do? What would that look like? I mean, I honestly believe if there was like actually people who said Jesus is not just Lord in words, but he's Lord in action, like, what would that do in homes? I think marriages would be restored. I think you'd see people who struggle with different addictions just surrendering to Jesus and seeing their lives transformed. I think some of the epidemics and some of the mental health crises, some of the things we're seeing, I think we see a surrender to Jesus, not my way of thinking, your way of thinking. I'd see we just, we would see powerful things happening. I sometimes I wonder, like, what would that look like? Like, what would a revival really look like? Man, South Florida, we'd need a revival, right? I mean, that would be beautiful. It's funny, this is what hit me. Uh, on Friday night, we landed, and we are jet-lagged, retired. We got to the airport at like 10 o'clock at night as a family. And we rushed and put our bags in the car, and we left our passports and credit cards attached to the cart. You know, because, I don't know, that's just what you do when you're jet-lagged, and it's 4 a.m. in your mind. And so we left our credit cards, and we left our passports there, and by 8.30 a.m., my wife's like, you know, wakes us up and wakes me up, and she's like, uh, we don't have our credit cards or passports. Go immediately on our, you know, online account, and, you know, $1,500 is already spent right away. In my mind, I'm like, of course the people who found our credit cards are not like Christians. Like, of course the people who find it. I'm like, why couldn't Christians, like, in my mind, come on, Lord, like, why couldn't a good person have found that? I don't know, that's just, and in my mind, like, I was just so, I'm like, people are so terrible. You know, if you ever have that feeling, like, people steal from you, you're like, oh. In my mind, I'm like, first of all, my heart is just, as, my heart's wicked, man. I don't want to, like, act like them versus us. My heart's crazy wicked. But I'm like, Lord, we need a revival in South Florida, all because of that stupid credit card thing. But in reality, I'm like, man, what would that look like? Like, what would that look like if people were just saying, no, no, like, I surrender all. I truly do. Like, Lord, Jesus, don't just be Lord in, in word only, in name only. Like, actively be Lord. Like, what would that look like? What would that do? And how do we get there? Like, how do we actually get there? Here, here's, I think, the simplicity of it. I think the simplicity of this, we see this in Nehemiah. We see this with King Josiah. There's just simply a rediscovery of the word of God. Revival broke out when they're like, hey, remember this book? This is pretty good. We should probably read it and do it. That's it. That's like how revival began. It's like this is everything we need for life and for godliness. Everything we need is right here. What if we actually believe this again? I think the most profound things like Christians, I, I'm in danger of this. I can read this and grow in information, but it doesn't mean I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. I can read this and like go, I agree with it, but do I believe into it? And I really do think there's a difference between agreeing with something and actively believing and living that thing out. And what would that look like? I mean, you think about this. Think about this book that we have. You know, I was reading something from uh, an atheist professor challenging Christians to read the Bible. And he's basically saying to these Christians, he's like, you don't even believe your own book. You don't. And he's quoting scriptures, he's quoting passages, and, and it's sad that we're getting called out so much more and more by people who are outside going, you don't even believe this. I'm like, man, what if we, we actually believe we have a revelation from God here? What if we actually said, let's just take this in? Think about this. Think about how many books there are. Think about how much information is out there. When you think about, like, if you've ever, I don't know, walked through, like, a local library. My wife has been taking the kids to the library this summer. But, like, you walk through a library, there's just countless books by all of these authors that will always, like, be there but just forgotten. Like, no one remembers them. There's just so, it's funny. It's funny how there's authors. There's, like, their life's work, and no one remembers it. No one cares. There's so much useless information out there. I thought it'd be worth pointing some of these fun books out because I just like to do weird things like this. Um, there's some books I'm like just researching and looking at, just stupid books that people actually wrote. And so here's some that we're going to read because I think it's kind of great. Uh, first thing is this. I don't know if you know this, but it's a great book title. Eating People is Wrong. 
It's a true book. It's a good book. I think it's very true. Someone wrote this. Any people's wrong? I just think this is kind of fun. Uh, the second book, How to Increase Your IQ by Eating Gifted Children. It's a real book. So one's eating it's wrong. The other's saying eat children. It's not literal. These are just people who wrote stupid, useless books. Another one, the third book someone wrote, uh, Feelings and How to Destroy Them. I like that one. You guys see, are the books popping up on here? I don't know. Could you imagine reading this to your children? Feelings and How to Destroy Them. It's a terrible book title. Uh, four, this is great. Toilet Paper Origami. It's a great bathroom book. It's a great read. It's actually a really good book, I think. Uh, I might get that one. I, I like this one. Uh, how to Make Money in Your Spare Time. I don't know if you see the cover. Hopefully, I kind of feel that way sometimes. And here's the last one. Uh, this is just a great old school book. The Manly Art of Knitting. So, this is good. I, I, it's so stupid, but like obviously there, there's countless books like this out there. And whether some people are trying to be funny, there's a book on like everything men know about women and you open it up and it's completely blank. Like there's some books I think that people just make for spoofs. But here's the idea. There's just so much information, so many books, so many things will come and go. And we have a book that will truly endure forever. Like I, I really do think this is so profound. This has been the number one bestseller year after year after year after year for a couple centuries. It's, it's unbelievable. The whole idea of the printing press, the whole idea of just how do we get the Bible out, how do we get this book out there? We have in our hands the most powerful book ever written. And do we value it? Do we read it? Do we love it? As Psalm 119 talks about it, do you meditate on it day and night? Is this more valuable than gold and silver? More valuable than wealth? Like this thing we have is so precious, but I don't know if I fully get what we have in our hands. And sometimes it's so easy to look at this book and just take it for granted, like, well, I've had this my whole life. And yet, here's what we see. When revival breaks out, it's people just simply rediscovering this book. And I would say this, I would love to see the church, again, rediscover this book, myself included. It's easy for me to be like, I've, I've read this before. I know this. Rather than like having this childlike approach of God, teach me again. Let it be like the first time I've ever heard this story. Lord, what is it you want to teach me this time? What is it you want to do in my heart? Where is Jesus in this passage? Where is the gospel in this? God, give me eyes to see what you want me to see in this book. I mean, I would love for the body of Christ to rediscover what God has given us again. And this is when revival has broken out. Historically, biblically, revival breaks out when the people of God begin to read this book and believe it. That's just, it's so simple. And so I want to look at this more as a whole. I want to see this. I, I, want to, I want to experience this. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about revival. He says, revival, he described it as to live again, to receive again, a life which has almost expired, to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly ex extinguished. Maybe you felt like there's been this, this spark in your life that's almost gone in your faith. And it's like, how can you pour gasoline onto that little spark through the word of God? I mean, there's really no secrets. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word. If you want to grow in faith, you have to take this book in. You have to eat it, consume it, live it. You have to. This is essential for everything we do. Maybe you've heard this before, but I think this is profound. Um, it's funny how so often the world obviously looks at us and looks at this book. You know, the atheistic Soviet Union in 1951 put out this uh, dictionary of foreign words, is the title of the book, the official dictionary of foreign words, and they wanted to describe the Bible to the Russian citizens back then. Here's what they called it. They said the Bible, it's a collection of different legends, mutually contradictory, and written at different times and full of historical errors, issued by churches as a holy book. 
That definition, I think, still stands for many today. That's how they view this book. Right? Obviously, I don't agree with this definition. There are many who view it this way, and they put it down this way. Voltaire, a very famous uh, French atheistic philosopher, he's, he's fascinating. He used to end this, he'd write his uh, letters to friends, and he would end his letters by base. I, I can't say it, uh, but he would end it by basically saying, end the faith. He just wanted to wipe out Christians. He hated Christians. He would end letters by saying, like, end the faith in his language. And here's what he said. He said this, Quoted out, he said, 100 years from now, or 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. He's like, there's not going to be one book left 100 years from now unless you're like a real seeker. It'll be in a museum. I love this because he said this in the 1700s. And then about 58 years later, and I had to fact check this and look this up a few different ways. But from my understanding, this seems to be a very legitimate and true story. The European Bible Society, the president actually bought Voltaire's house and out of his house distributed Bibles from it. I love that. 100 years from now, this book's not going to be around. And this president of this European Bible Society is like, let's take that house and send Bibles around the world from his house. I love that. Listen, this book endures forever. A lot of information will come and go. And the word of God endures forever. And my hope is, how do we actually, like, appreciate this again, value this again? How do I actually just say, Lord, I'm going to ask tough questions. I don't want to have blind faith. But at the same time, I do want to have a childlike response to your word. And I want to look at it through this lens of my God is big. And my God can do things that sometimes I don't always want to say out loud. But my God is big and can do some powerful things. So here's what I want to do. Uh, two points today, and I'll make it number one's long, and number two will be really, really quick. But we're going to do this. Number one is this, rediscovering the word, and number two is reapply the word. Rediscover the word, reapply the word. Why don't we just read it? Second Chronicles chapter 34. Uh, let's look at verse 1. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. Here's what it says. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, <laughs> and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. All right, really quick. I want to get back to his age in just a moment and break this down. But here's what I want to point out. Um, Josiah is eight years old. He becomes king. And it says he did what his father David did. All right. Now, his father, his great-great-grandpa, like 17 generations from David to Josiah. If you guys were here last week, uh, his grandpa Manasseh goes down as most likely the most evil king in all of Israel and Judah's history. Manasseh was just evil. His dad, evil. So you have in that list you saw in the beginning, you have your grandpa who goes down as just a wicked guy. Your dad is wicked. And then Josiah is like his great-great-grandfather, David. And I love this. And I don't want to pass over this. You think about this. You're like, my dad's evil. My grandpa's evil. And here's a guy serving God. I love this because this gives us incredible hope. I don't know what kind of parents you had, what your dad was like, your grandpa was like. My grandpa did this, my dad did this, so therefore I have to, like, I love that Josiah breaks his family chains. And it's like, it doesn't matter if my dad did this or my grandpa did this, I don't have to do this. It's unbelievable because you do see this a lot. It's almost like you think because of a family, certain personality trait or something your family did, that's just what I'm gonna do. Josiah's like, no, 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 not me. From a young age. It's unbelievable they say he's like his father, David. I I honestly want this to give you hope. If you ever feel like I'll never break this aspect, my dad was this, my grandpa was this, my family, this is just who we are, I love it. You can change your generation, you can change your life, you can change your story, it does not have to be like your father's, your grandfather's. I love that. He was like his great, 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 somewhere down the line, I'm sure in your history, there's someone who loved Jesus. And for him, it's 17 generations, going back to David, they're saying he was like him. He was like David, his father. 
just, it goes and says, let me just break my family chains. We'll keep going. Verse 3. So verse 3 says, so he's eight years old, he became king. For in the eighth year of his reign, verse 3, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. All right, we got to break this down. Eight years old, he becomes king, right? Eight years old, becomes king. I, I have an eight-year-old. That's terrifying, right? I literally reading this going, oh, Micah be king at eight? There's nothing more terrifying than that. But at eight years old, like for me, what would your first decree be at eight? Like Pop-Tarts for everyone. Like what would you do, right? Like you're eight. But it says then this. So he's eight years old, becomes king. I want you to understand this too. He's obviously had to really rely on tradition, on stories told to him, on what he's known from maybe those around him. Probably, well, obviously it wasn't his dad or grandpa, but those around him speaking into him and had to really rely on those. It says in the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek God. So if you look at verse three, eighth year of his reign. So he's eight years old in the eighth year of his reign. How old is he? He's 16. So at 16, I want you to see this. This is when he began to seek God, it says. At 16, he began to seek God. Even a 60-year-old king, that's terrifying. But at 16, he's like, I'm going to pursue God passionately. I, I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with this story because I, I love this. We do, we do put limitations on God sometimes, either age being too young, age being too old. I love this because Josiah is 16 pursuing God. Moses is 80 when God's like, your ministry begins now and he's 80. I love that God doesn't put like limits on his people and on their age. But there's this beautiful thing at 16 years old, he's like, I'm going to pursue God with everything I got. I would say this, it's very easy if you grew up in a Christian home to maybe live through your parents' faith for a while or to live through someone else's faith or see it through that lens. But it, he began to pursue God. I would say this, and I know that we have people in youth, but I'm not sure how young you are or how old you are. But please don't put limits on God. If you're thinking, I'm too old, Moses 80. I'm too young, Josiah 16. And he began to seek God. I love there's one person who begins to seek God, and really a revival breaks out. It began with one person saying, I'm going to pursue God with everything I have. Like sometimes we hope that revival starts in this like theoretical way, but what if it started with one person? What if it started with you? What if he said, I'm going to have a revival in my own life and I'm going to have a revival in my life? Like what if we all individually and then collectively had that little mini revival going on? But I love that he began to see God. And here's the idea. Biblically speaking, he never sought God first. Like we know this. We know that God sought him first. I want you to understand, if you ever come to believe, like if you now believe in Jesus, maybe you did in your teens or in your adulthood, you believe in Jesus. It's crazy because at first you're like, I'm, I, I'm pursuing God. Like I love God. I'm going to follow God. And then as you start to like get into it, you're like, actually God was pursuing me the whole time. God sought me the whole time. Like I thought I did, but he was pursuing me. He was chasing me down. Way before Josiah began to seek God, God was seeking Josiah. Way before you began to seek God, God was seeking you. And you have to know this, we have a God who seeks. And the only way to respond is responding by seeking him. And I love this because at 16, in his eighth year of his reign, he began to seek God. There's phrases in the Old Testament sometimes we have to sit in. There's phrases in the Bible we have to like sit in that. He began, what does that mean? What does it mean he began to seek God? Knowing what we know, not having the Torah, not having the scriptures at this point, not yet, we'll see why. 
knowing what we know. What he, he just took some stories and he says, I'm going I'm to live off that. That's enough for me. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to give everything I have to pursue God. I need him. I cannot stress enough right now, it doesn't matter your age, right now, begin to seek God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's what Isaiah tells us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is the time. Listen, sometimes we, um, we have a disconnect in the church today between accepting Christ and passionately pursuing Christ. There is a danger to think, well, at one point in time, I accepted Jesus. It's like, that's great. But that acceptance of Jesus must lead to this passionate pursuit of Jesus. It must lead to that. It says he began to seek God. And it leads him on this journey of just seeking God. In the 12th year of his reign, when he's 20, in the uh, 16th year of his reign, we see him constantly at different points seeking the Lord for years. My point is, seek the Lord today while he may be found. Don't assume I'll do it later. He's 16, seeking God with everything he has. I love this about the guy. So we begin to see God. It says this, at, in 20 years old, in the 12th year of his reign, it says he cleansed the lands of false God. All right, so 16, he's pursuing God. So eight years old king, 16, uh, he's pursuing God. At 20 years old, he's like, uh, look around, Israel. Why do we have all of these pagan like idols set up to, these, to Asherim and these false gods? Let's tear them down. Let's crush them. He goes, this, all I know is this, this ain't right. And basically, he's saying, like, there needs to be holiness for God to wor- work and move. Like, there's some things that are out of order. We need purity in the land again, because we have all these perverse things in our land, and we need to get rid of it. And so basically, there's this call for him to take all these things out. That's verse 3 through 7. We got to get rid of this. Um, here's the idea. You must value purity with God more than you value popularity with others. That's the idea. He's 20. Listen, people are now for 60 years with his grandpa and his dad. For 60 years, they've been doing their own thing. Who does this 20-year-old think he is to tear down our gods? Who does this 20-year-old think he is to have us stop doing what we've been doing? We like what we're doing. We enjoy what we're doing. And he's like, no, no, no more. We can't live this way. We can't continue down this path. It's only going to lead to destruction. We're actually told that there would have been destruction earlier if not for King Josiah seeking the Lord. There would have, it would have come much sooner. It's going to come with his sons, but it would have come much sooner. The point is, he goes, no, no, we're not going to continue in this. Listen, there is something so beautiful when you say, I care more about purity with God than I care about my reputation with others. I care more about how God views me than how the people around view me. This is what he's saying. He's like, we got to get rid of this. I'm 20. What is it? You know, I, I get it. I'm 35. But you think, you see a 20-year-old maybe do that. you like, what do you know? You're 20. He's like, here's what I know. God's not being first. Uh, God's not on the throne here in our land. He's, he's going to be on the throne of his, in, of his land. Like, he's going to be first now. And I love this passionate pursuit. Listen, um, purity is essential for true worship. This idea, like, you, you know this. There's something so beautiful about when you feel like you can sing to God in spirit and in truth, like in purity going, Lord, there's, I'm at peace with others. There's no other people around me that I need to, like, recon- like I've reconciled with those people. I, I've, I'm calling upon you. I'm, it's not done in hypocrisy. It's just done in purity. He's trying to like worship the Lord in this pure moment. Um, the idea is this, God's righteousness is more important than our reputation. He's saying here in our land, we need, we need God to be on the throne. God's righteousness is way more important than my reputation. One thing I just want to consider before we just move on from this point. One guy, eight years old, 16, 20, goes, hey, uh, we're going to pursue God here. One guy. There's, there's this uh, famous guy named Rodney Smith, who was a part of a few different revivals throughout history, he said this about revival. He says, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, 
There, on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that circle. I love that thought. He's like, where does revival begin? Draw a circle, it begins there. It begins not out there. It's not like the problem's out there. The problem's in here. God, let there be revival in my heart. Let it start here. And that's what we see. He goes, hey, no, draw a circle and say, God, pray fervently and brokenly. God, do something in my heart. God, why, why did I lose that passion? Why am I so indifferent about you? God, that spark, I ask that you'd fan into that into a flame. God, pour gasoline out on that. That love I had for you years ago, rekindle that love. Remember Revelation, he says, repent and do your first works. You've left your first love. God, rekindle that love. And this is Rodney Smith's response is just go home, lock yourself in a room, pray, God, do it here, do it with me. Not out there, not with someone else. Do it here with me. Whether or not it catches on, do it here with me. This, this is that response. So there's so many amazing stories. When you look at like church revivals throughout history, America, outside of America, China, Africa, Europe, it's, um, it's unbelievable how it always begins, but it always does begin with prayer. Uh, there's this guy named Jeremiah Lamphnir, and he's a part of the Fulter Street Prayer Meeting. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but basically in the 1800s, like 1850s, 1857, I believe, uh, he led a revival in New York City. And so here's a businessman, a wealthy businessman who God grabs hold of his heart. And so he invites people out to pray at lunchtime. Hey, business, get business people kind of start with that. Hey, anyone in business in New York City, uh, meet me here at this little place. We're going to pray from 12 to 1 o'clock. You can, and he wrote it on his flyer. Like, they have like copies of it. But on his flyer, you can come for 5, 10, 20 minutes for the whole time. And basically from 12 to 1230, he wanted to start this prayer meeting or for this certain day. And he's there for the first half hour by himself. By the end of the prayer meeting, two people joined him. He had like three people with him. Next week, he had about like 15 people, and it just slowly grew. The Fulton prayer meeting grew to over 10,000 people in New York City in the 1850s, gathering every day at lunchtime to pray. Every day. 10,000 people back then in New York City calling on God. And they called it the Fulton uh, prayer meeting revival. And I love that just began with, Lord, I'm going to seek you. It's going to start here. And imagine that. Imagine inviting people and you're the only one. I've been at a part of a few Bible studies where I've been the only one there, right? It's, it's you're like, oh, God, what are you doing? Please bring one person. And then one person comes. You're like, please don't leave. Um, and it's so beautiful. And then like, God, turn it into four, turn it into eight and grow this, Lord. But just this hunger for God. And it might be awkward and it might just be you and you might be doing something at home. You might just say, I want to pray. I want to come to the exchange early in the morning and pray maybe for an hour. And this is not an organized thing or this is organized. But Lord, we're just going to pray. Like, what if we actually did do this? This is so how so often God has worked and moved. So he's 20 years old. He's tearing these things down. We'll re read verse uh, nine or verse eight. It says this. Now in the 18th year of his reign. So 18 plus eight, how old is he? 18 plus 8. Come on, math people. He's 26. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, he's 26, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. All right. At 8, he's king. 16, he's seeking God. 20 years old, he's cleansing the land of false gods. At 26, so he's 26, follow with me. Now he's like, we need to rebuild the house of God. So 26, he's now been seeking the Lord for quite some time. And he's like, we need to rebuild the house of God. He basically says, it starts here. If we want to see God move and work, it's going to start where? In the house of God. That's what he's saying. We're told this in 1 Peter, judgment begins in the house of God. There's this idea of like, God, start within here. I love this because just hear me out. For them, God met them in the temple. What is the temple in the New Testament? 
The temple in the New Testament is us. The temple in the New Testament is our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this so clearly. It says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. You hear that? Just like, hey, we need to fix this thing up, the temple. And here's the idea for us. God, do a work again. Hey, it begins here. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. Start here, God. I'm giving you, this is my spiritual worship, saying, here's my body. Here I am. Send me. Use me. Let it begin in the temple of God. This is what he's doing. Offering himself up. Offering the temple. Saying, God, meet us again. I love this because this is where God meets us. God, meet us. Ephesians 3 talks about Jesus who dwells in your hearts richly through faith. Jesus, meet us. Here's my body. I'm yours. Lord, yes, restore, rekindle. 26, let's rebuild the temple. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 14, let's just pick up in verse 14. Let's read what happens, all right? 26, rebuild the temple. Verse 14, bear with me. Look down at verse 14. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, he says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. All right, hear me. Hilkiah is cleaning out and fixing out the house of the Lord, like Josiah said, he's 26. As Hilkiah is fixing up the house of the Lord, it says the book of the law was found in the house of the Lord. What does that mean? It means the word of God was lost in the house of God. That is fascinating. Please hear that again. He found the law. He found the Torah. He found the books of Moses in the house of God. So they're doing all of this without having the Torah. Didn't have it. The priest didn't have it. The king didn't have it. The word of God was lost in the house of God. Do you hear that? I mean, this is scary when you read this. You go, oh my gosh, this does feel like, I don't want to be too weird with it, but you hear that. You go, is that today? The word of God was lost in the house of God. That's terrifying. It's crazy the church didn't have the book. Like, they didn't have it. I think sometimes what freaks me out in 2023 is like, does the church today have the word of God? Like, the word of God was lost in the house of God. They rediscovered the word of God in the house of God. I would say this, um, we need to rediscover the Word of God in the house of God. We need to make this, again, a priority. I'm not trying, and I really want to be careful when I say this. I don't want to sound self-righteous or like, our church is doing better than other churches. That is so dangerous. That is not my heart in this, but it does concern me when I, sometimes you go, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Like, this is way better than what I have to say. How do we rediscover this book again? Like, how do we not have clever or tr- tricky, th- like, how do we say, Lord, I want to rediscover your Word again? Like, this, this is what needs to come about. The word of God was lost in the house of God. Here's the problem. When the word of God is lost in the house of God, people miss out on the love of God. I fully believe that. When we don't preach through this book or the full counsel of God's word, I think people are missing out on the full scope of the love and grace and goodness and justice of God. I think when you miss out on this book, 
I think we're missing out on what God wants to say to us. When it's just like, what can I say that'll be clever or, or interesting this week? We're missing out. We need to rediscover this book again. Yes? I think it'd be amazing if we actually rediscovered and believed this again. This is why Paul says to Timothy, this is huge. Paul wrote to a young pastor in 1 Timothy 4. Paul said, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Like, this is, this is like a big part of what we do. Paul's like, hey, the way the church should function, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to encouragement, and to doctrine. He's like, this is what you need to give attention to, time to. We need to rediscover the Word of God, I believe, so much in 2023 today. I love this because Jeremiah, a prophet later, would say this about God's Word. He says, your words were found, and I ate them, and your word to me was the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Um, I love when you, when you come across this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is like, God, when I found your words, I just consumed, I ate them up. It, I, was star- I had no idea how, how starving my soul was until your words were there and I just consumed them. Have you ever, like, there's, I get it. I get that sometimes reading this Bible can be a chore. Like, oh, I'm, su- I'm supposed to do this. But have you had those moments in your life when you actually like, I'm actually hungry for this. Like, I actually feel like my soul is starving. I feel like I'm dying and I feel like I need some meat in my body. And the only thing I can consume that will fulfill that is the word of God. He goes, your word was found and I ate it and it was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. It brought me so much joy when I found this, your word, when I consumed it. We need to rediscover this book again. This is the point. So here's the thing. The word of God was lost in the house of God. How did revival begin? When they rediscover the word of God. So they read it, they get the book, they find it, they read it to King Josiah. Now it says this in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. We'll stop there. But basically, this is always a sign of repentance. So they're reading, like imagine they're reading through Deuteronomy and how they should have been living. And most scholars believe that was the first book they read to him, was Deuteronomy. And they're reading through, this is the way God works, and this is how he wants you to live. And they're reading through this book, and he tears his clothes, and what have we been doing? How did we miss this? And there's this a sense of humility and repentance in that response. I'm not saying you have to tear your clothes, but here's the idea. Uh, James 1.21 says this, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I love talking to someone who is genuinely curious about life and the things of God, or scriptures, or Christianity, when someone's not coming at with this, like, attack of type of mentality, but they're like, I'm receiving the word with meekness. I love how James said, receive the word with meekness. This thing is able to save your souls. Be humble in your response. The only way to respond to the word of God, he's saying, is with humility. He hears the word, he tears his clothes. Isaiah 66, 2, please hear this. It says, but this is the one to whom I will look. Or God says, this is the one with whom I'm pleased. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God's like, it's not enough just to hear my word. I don't want us to miss this point. It's not enough just to rediscover the word. It's how do you respond when the word of God is placed in front of you? The idea is when he hears the word, he goes, oh, things have been off. James says, receive the word with meekness. This can save your souls. God says, this is the one on whom I look with favor. I'll look upon you with favor. The one who humbly receives my word. The whole idea is God's like, when you hear this, there has to be some sort of, listen, let's not pretend the Bible, the Bible is extreme. The Bible is a crazy extreme. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's an extreme thing. Jesus is making a very exclusive and inclusive statement at the very same time. He's saying, only through me, but all are welcome. Only through me, but all who come to me will have everlasting life. It's exclusive in the claim and also inclusive. You're welcome. Anyone can come, but it's only through me. 
Like we can't downplay. I don't want to like downplay scriptures. The, you know, the scriptures say some pretty intense things. You want to you want to live? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. You want to have life everlasting? Repent and believe on Jesus, and you'll be saved. Like I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to hide from that. It makes some pretty radical. The only way to respond to the word of God is humbly. Like you can't. If you want to respond to it arrogantly, it's gonna have no effect. The idea is he goes, okay, Lord, this is what you say. I, I hear it. I receive it. He responds to it. Listen, I want to just encourage you in this mindset. Um, please, please relook at how you read the Bible right now. It's very easy to read the Bible with a, with a hard heart. It's very easy to read the Bible with this applies to someone else. It's very easy to read the Bible with this was good for them then, maybe not today. Maybe there's some truth, a little bit of truth. We, we really have to reevaluate how we read this book. I love what Brendan Manning says. He says this. He says, let's just hear this. He says, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say, Rather than what it does say, the word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our soul. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm into the corners of our, uh, of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates the sharp lightning in the dark recess of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. What he's saying is, again, in the beginning, uh, when you come to this book with preconceived notions, it's not going to have its effect. Like, when you come saying, I want the Bible to say this. I think the Bible should say this. No, let it say what it says. Read it. Take it in. Watch it fulfill the, the deepest hunger, the dryness in your life. Watch you find satisfaction that would never be found elsewhere except in the Word of God. It's crazy how many people you meet who are so dissatisfied, so disillusioned with life, so frustrated by the church or frustrated by this thought or whatever. And it's like, just read the scriptures and let it speak for itself. Don't come to it and say, I want it to say this. Come to it with humility saying, know it, Lord, what is it you want to say? Not my will, but your will. Watch God speak to you when you actually come to it with humility. He hears the Word he tears his clothes. The only appropriate way to respond to the Word of God is with humility. This is the idea. It's not enough just to read it. How do you read it? I've met many people who said, I've read the Bible. I'm like, did you? Or how did you read it? Did you read it with arrogance? Did you read it with some sort of openness? Like, how did you read it? It is so important to come to this in humility. Here's the idea. We must rediscover this book again. Josiah's time as a king is he's pursuing God. He's tearing down idols. They find the book of the law, and immediately in the next chapter, he's like, uh, we haven't been doing Passover. Let's do Passover. We haven't been remembering the fact that there was a sacrifice that was given for us so that we could live. We've missed the point of the whole book. The whole book is this. Um, you and I are all guilty of breaking the law and heart of God. Because we've broken the heart of God, because we've broken the law of God, we've sinned. We all deserve death. But there's been a sacrifice that God has provided for us. So because it dies, we live. Because its blood is shed, we get to live. And it points to a greater picture to Jesus. So here's the idea. Number one is this. Rediscover the word. Number two is reapply the word. Chapter 35, I'm not going to get into it. It's all about him saying, the Passover, we must do the Passover. For us, in 2023, when Jesus was taking Passover with the disciples, he says, this Passover meal, um, this is the covenant with I, I make with you. This new covenant I give to you. And Jesus reinterprets the Passover or say, hey, I am the sacrifice whose blood is going to be shed. And so if you believe on me, you will live. Jesus says, I'm the Passover lamb. And if you drink my blood and eat of my body, you too will live. And the idea for Jesus was saying, put your faith in me as the final Passover lamb, as that final sacrifice. And if you believe on me, you will be saved. And here's what I want to do. I just want to end with our, our church, not just making this some informational thing. I want to just end by simply remembering the broken body and the blood of Jesus. And because by his stripes, we are healed. I just remember the Lord by taking communion today. And I, I feel like this is, we're missing the point, you guys. 
I, I think that sometimes what, we, what I can do, and I, like, I don't want to just do this, I don't want to just teach the text, like, this is information, right? This is cool, a cool story that happened. I do believe that God wants to meet with us through that Passover meal again that we call communion or the Eucharist. This idea of saying, I'm going to remember Jesus' body. I'm going to remember Jesus' blood. I'm going to remember that he is the Passover lamb that was shed for my sins. Like, here's, here's the point, you guys. I think we'll never see revival unless we rediscover the word and reapply the word. We'll never see revival. I really do believe that. I think there's other components, obviously, prayer, the Holy Spirit. There's so many components. But in reality, it's like, how do I actually rediscover this book again and just do what it says? And King Josiah finds the word of God and says, uh, we should start doing this, guys. That's what chapter 35 is. Let's just do this. Let's bring back the Passover. Hey, let's just do the word of God. Jesus says, hey, take this, eat this, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's do that. We're going to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I'm going to ask that we're just slow, that we don't try to make this about some Bible study thing. Just make this about you and Jesus. Just meet with Jesus. Let Jesus remind you of the sacrifice he made for you and for me. Like, let's rediscover this book again. God, make this new to me again. So why don't you just bow your head really quick, close your eyes. I just want to pray and just turn this into just another time of worship, of response to the word. So let's just do that. Father, we just want to say thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark, that you have not left us without revelation from you. God, I, I just ask that um, I and we would not fall into the trap of reading the Bible and finding it interesting and fascinating and yet not believing it, and yet not leaning into it and living it out. Lord, I ask that in my heart, in my life, in our church's heart and life, that, Lord, um, we would just rediscover your book. That this book was lost in the house of God years ago. Let it not be lost again today. Lord, I ask that the church in general would just rediscover your words. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word to me was their joy and rejoicing of my heart. Lord, I ask that your word would bring joy again to our lives. I ask that it would satisfy the, the, the deepest parts of us that seem to just never be fulfilled, that we'd read your word, open it up, and you would just meet us in those places. Jesus, we want to say thank you for the fact that you are the Passover lamb that you are the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that you are the lamb that all of heaven cries out and says, worthy is the lamb who was slain, that Jesus, you are the lamb who is slain. We just want to say thank you that your blood was shed for our forgiveness. Your body was broken so we could be made complete. And we just want to say thank you, Jesus. There is no one like you. This whole book is about you. You are the Word. You are the Logos. You are the Word made flesh. Jesus, I ask that our church would rediscover you, that I too would join him in that. This is not for all of us, Lord, that we just rediscover that you are what we are made for, God, that we would not be satisfied in anything or with anything else other than you, Jesus. Help us not read these as the stories of the past, Lord. We still repeat the same story. We forget your book. We lose it. We don't read it. We don't live it. And we ask that that would no longer take place. Lord, that we'd rediscover your word today. It'd bring joy and rejoicing to our heart that we just sing to you, praise you, look to you. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, Jesus. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. God, we thank you that you pursued us. So I ask that everyone in this room right now, Jesus, that you'd meet with them, that Holy Spirit, you would communicate and do in their lives um, what it is you want to do. If you want to bring conviction or exhortation, if you just want to just comfort them, let them know that they are seen, that they are loved by you, that God, you gave your best for us. 
just, I ask that you would speak to us, Lord, now. In your precious name. Before you just worship, I just want to remind you and encourage you guys with communion. Take some time. Eat this and drink this when you're ready. This is going to be something we're going to do here individually. As worship is playing, as worship is singing, if you want to just be alone, eating, drinking, thanking, praising, standing, kneeling, spend some time just alone with the Lord, join us in worship. We just want to do this. God, do this again. Like what happened in Josiah's day, do it again, Lord. Let us rediscover your word. Let us celebrate the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the people. We have that in Jesus. Yes? Amen? Our sins are forgiven because we have the Passover lamb. It is in Jesus. Let's just worship, take communion. So when you are ready, feel free to eat and drink, but we're going to sing. We're going to take communion. Let's do that now.